So I think it's time to reveal something to you. Okay. I believe that the writers of Deep Space Nine hate O'Brien. I, I, I think they are putting him through a lot of fucked up shit this season. Well, so the thing about, about Tribunal is is it, it, this isn't a long line of, of O'Brien, let's torture O'Brien episodes. Aww. You know, it, I mean, we've seen a few already. We've seen, um, you know, when there was that duplicate O'Brien. And I mean, he's gone Whispers. through. Yeah, he's gone through a bunch of weird shit. No, he has absolutely, and he he gets more weird shit actually um, in the next uh, five seasons to come. He, he had that disease that like was paralyzing him when Bashir had to like fix the thing. Well, I don't know if I would really. Th- I don't really consider that a let's torture O'Brien episode. I mean, no, but 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 it's it's more bad things than have happened to him normally. I well, mean, yes, he's a main character now, but. The, the thing about O'Brien is that O'Brien is always kind of like he's he's ostensibly the everyman of the show, yeah. right? He's he's not a member of Starfleet. Uh, well, he's a member of Starfleet, but he didn't go to Starfleet Academy. He's an enlisted man. They make a, a, a point of saying that over and over again. You know, he's the guy. He fixes things. He's he's just kind of your average, you know, blue cla- blue collar working Joe, right? Uh, which you know ostensibly is is true and ostensibly is not, of course. I mean, yeah, he's he's the guy who he 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 fixes things. He goes home to his family, and that's his life, and he's very happy with it. You know, I like O'Brien. I think you know most people like O'Brien because you know, yeah, he's a he's just a nice dude. You know, he's he's helpful in his way. He's not going to he's he's not he's not he's a very drama free person. Yeah, but then at the same time, the show punishes him over and over and over yeah. again for being that person. And I think that it's kind of, I mean, you know, you, you get out a road of saying like, oh, you know, the writers of the show don't like the proletariat and they think that they want them to suffer. I mean, I don't think it's anything like that. I think that O'Brien is just such a, you know, if if anybody on the show is just an average, like decent, yeah. you know, moral person who doesn't really want much out of life other than a warm bed and a hot meal and a hot wife and his kids then I think that that's, you know, that that's that's what he wants out of life. He, yeah. he is the closest to the everyman of the show. So putting him in these situations, like in Whispers, for example, which, you know, you, you I mean, there's arguments about whether or not that's a Let's, Let's Torture O'Brien episode, but I think that it is because, of course, the, the, the duplicate O'Brien is still O'Brien. Yeah. And then in Tribunal, of course, you know, even... To, to, to a larger degree, I mean, he's getting tortured and he's getting his teeth ripped out and he's being put he's on trial. He's just a dude Kardashian. going on vacation with his wife for the first time in five years, you know, and on, on the way home he gets arrested. And, yeah, I mean, he's kind of... Not even not even gets arrested, though. I yeah, mean, that, true. Yeah, he gets kidnapped, basically. The thing, well, the thing... <laughs> yeah. But I think that, you know, the interesting thing about the setup of, of Tribunal is... He's just going on vacation with his wife. You know, he hasn't had a vacation in five years. You know, is is he? And it, the thing is, like, they paint it to be a nice trip. They paint it to be like, oh, you know, they're squabbling over. He forgot the holo cam. And yeah, he's uh, gonna. He's a workaholic, and you know, she wants him to. Re- you know, it's he's it's, gonna miss Molly because you know the yeah. Mo- Molly is staying with some neighbors or whatever. And I'm glad that the show remembers that she exists <laughs> because I think that that's a step above what. TNG was doing with, say, Alexander. I was going to say Molly and Alexander are like shut up in the punishment room. You know, they, they're they're well, they're, no, because they're because, put into medical stasis for the duration. No, because the show—that's my point. The show remembers yeah. that Molly exists. No, it's. True. I think that if this was Worf on TNG, they would. I mean, they've done that before. Where you know, Worf goes off in the Batleth tournament or whatever the fuck he's doing and hitting himself with pain sticks, and they don't mention Alexander at all. And you're like. Where the hell is Alexander? Uh, At least this show remembers that Molly exists and makes an excuse for why she's not there. But I think, you know, but the larger point, of course, is that is that O'Brien misses her and, and wants her to go, wants her to go back, you know. Uh, so this is a this is a good guy. And then, of course, you know, two minutes into the show, he gets ostensibly kidnapped yeah. by Cardassians. And I mean, that that's in a way. I mean, it is a way of making it, it of escalating the horror of the situation. I mean, and, you know, someone oh, yeah. like Cisco or Major Kira or, you know, Dax or whatever have, you know, dealt with. They are combat trained, you know, in a way that, I mean, O'Brien was a soldier, certainly, you know, but at this point, he's a family man and those days are behind them. And he's not really, while he is willing to do whatever it, you know, Starfleet needs of him, you know, he he's more just tinkering with what, what did they say in the, uh, mirror universe you know he's puttering and tinkering i mean that's what he does right right yeah that's what he does i mean i think you know to a large degree i think that that you know the the mirror universe o'brien we didn't talk that much about the mirror universe o'brien but i think that 
you know, it's 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 a it's a good conversation to bring all these different aspects of O'Brien into this because this is an, an, an episode about O'Brien in a lot of ways and his fundamental decency as a person. You know, I think that, that you see the mirror universe O'Brien and you think, okay, well, this is kind of what he would be if he wasn't a, anything, right? If he didn't amount to anything. I mean, you know, he's just kind of he's he's got that kind of mind. He's got that sort of of, of skill about tinkering, and he he's well, always going to want to do that. I think that what you see in in our universe of, of Star Trek is is this is a man who you know in, in, in a certain sense I guess you could argue that that this is really um, you know O'Brien is the best example of what the Federation is capable of yeah. in a sense if you know what I mean in, in this version I mean in the mirror universe Feder- in the mirror universe you know O'Brien is not given the opportunity really until the very end for his skills to really flourish so I mean he has some natural abilities but you know. In this one, this this is an opportunity. This is a this is a world where you know O'Brien can go very far. Where someone who just enlisted in the Federation and just randomly you know discovered you know in the heat because you know we remember he he explicitly says he discovered his you know affinity for machines. You know when he was given ten minutes to fix a transporter or be captured and killed, and, right? And suddenly he was able to you know rise to that. But you know this is a ver- you know this version of the Federation gives these opportunities and gives these you know. Uh, t- you know, chances for him to learn more and get, you know, again, eventually be the head of ops of this, you know, of this station. Yeah, exactly. I mean, he is, in a sense, you know, the chief engineer of Deep Space Nine. Yeah. And I think that's that's great, right? Um, but then, of course, what we get in Tribunal is is the show using that fundamental decency of his character, n- not, not against him, but I think... You know, I, I don't think that there's a couple of reasons why this episode is, is so effective. And I think, you know, I, I mean, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I think this is a this oh, is a, good this is a very good episode. Uh, and I think there's a couple of things in it that are right up your alley, especially about Cardassians. But, you know, there's a couple of things here, which is number one, the show obviously is using O'Brien as a, he's a stand in for us. Right. Yeah. And so I don't think that that putting another character on the show into this kind of situation would have been quite as horrifying. You know, uh, uh, picturing Cisco or picturing Bashir or picturing anybody else um, in this episode, I think, you know, they would have protested more. You know, Brian is sort of, yeah. you know, he protests a little bit in the beginning, but then, of course, uh, he doesn't. He's just kind of like, well, this is what's happening. I was going to say, in a way, he's broken a lot easier than, you know. I don't, you know. Now, I, I, I wouldn't say he's completely broken, no, but I mean, he, he is overwhelmed by an overwhelming situation maybe a little quicker than someone like Cisco would have been. You know, I actually disagree with you. I don't think that it's being overwhelmed. I think that what O'Brien realizes is when it's appropriate to fight and when mm. it's not. Okay, that's and, fair. and I think that in a lot of cases, you know, he's not spending a lot of time trying to figure out how to escape or how to get away from this or, or making a lot of speeches because he realizes that it's a futile gesture and he would rather save his energy. Yeah, I mean I think in a lot of ways O'Brien is a, is a, is a pragmatist. That's that's a very fair thing to say. Yeah. Um what I think is interesting though, I mean we've talked a little bit about, you know, whether or not the Federation is naive. I mean it's a shit, it's, it's something that the show has brought up itself. Um everybody is what we know about the Cardassian legal system is it is a kangaroo court designed to be this – it's not – you know, in this version this version of the legal system, we heard it mentioned, you know, with Gul Dukat talking about how they always know who's guilty. This, you know, is a little closer to, in a way, on a mystery show when the detective says, here's who did it and here's how it happened, you know. Right. That, you know, and I mean – Plenty of people will talk about, okay, well, when, you know, Jessica Fletcher, you know, says this, well, then there's still the trial and they could get off, you know. Well, that's not part of this legal system. You, you shouldn't know? get off in a courtroom, Richard, just just by the way. There are judges who have been found doing that um, under great. the robes. Um, anyway, we, we – we, the characters seem to believe that there is faith that actual justice can come out of this. And frankly, the – I mean, it's ambiguous at the end, and I guess we'll talk about that, whether or not justice was served, but... Well, I think that, that, that you know, I was about to say that justice on Cardassia doesn't exist, but I actually think that it's, it's kind of an irrelevant question, right? Yeah. I mean, because, you know, this is one of the things that I really like about, about the show, and I think that the, the show and the writers, you know, do a really good job of developing Cardassian society. I think that, that, you know, in a lot of ways, 
in a lot of ways, what happens with Cardassia and the buildup of Cardassian society is is kind of what happened with the Klingons and TNG. Mm. You know, I think there's a the Vulcans, I think, are fleshed out enough, but I don't think that they're really fleshed out to the degree that the Klingons or the Cardassians are or become. Right. No, but and at I, the same point, like. I would say Spock gets fairly fleshed out, and he's a in the original series. He's a stand-in at least for a lot of our understanding of Vulcans in the original series, the animated series, and the original series movies is all filtered through Spock. And so we learn a lot about Vulcan. We learn a lot about Vulcan society and culture, but it's all sort of filtered through Spock. Whereas yeah. the Klingon stuff in TNG is sort of half filtered through Worf and half not filtered through Worf. Well, I would, but s- but the Klingons are are I think the the species that get the most development in TNG, and I think that so far, mm. you know, a- at least in terms of a a you know non Federation. I mean, I'm kind of lumping the Bajorans oh, into Lord. the Federation category only because the Federation has a presence there, and there's factions within the Bajoran society. They're allies, them, if not men. You know, there there are these. Con- they want them to join yeah. the Federation, whereas I think the Cardassians are sort of becoming the Klingons of Deep Space Nine in as much as they're getting developed really well. Yeah. Well, I mean, this is just actually bringing up something interesting that. Um, See, both Spock and Worf are half Vulcan, half human, or half Klingon, half human. And well, Worf isn't half human, but yeah. I oh know, no, no, I know no, 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 no! That, that's right. Um, he's raised, uh, you know. But we talked about culturally. You know, yes, yes. Um, you know, Spock is the representative of Vulcan. He was, you know, raised on Vulcan, certainly, and he has more of that. I mean, Worf. There was the, we, you know, we always talked about how there was that divide between, you know, Worf having kind of the, you know, idealistic version of what it means to be Klingon. And then, you know, there was a very strong contrast between what was actually going on on, the, on Klingon. And, um, you know, we, we, we haven't had a representative or a focal character who's Cardassian, you know, that we can, you know, get a kind of a view about what... But I think it's interesting in this episode we do start to get... Uh, <clears throat> A lot of the Cardassian characters have told us what it means to be Cardassian. Goldicott has his interpretation. The lawyer has a very strong interpretation of what it means to be— I find the lawyer— Garrick. Yeah, Garrick has an interpretation of what it means to be Cardassian. But what I'm realizing and finding interesting is that this is a very— I don't know, there's something almost inertial about it because, you know, you have— you know, who's leading Cardassia? You know, we talk about— you know, Cardassian justice, you know, according to the lawyer, is every so often someone needs to be sacrificed to the state, basically. You know, we we have this vision of the state who sees everything and knows everything, and if you commit a crime, eventually the state is going to find out about it, and you're going to be chewed up by the state, you know, as a reminder to as, – as a very visible uh, – incarnation of Cardassian justice. Cardassian justice is the state wins in the end. You know, the state is all powerful. But we don't, you know, we, 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 we're learning that there are factions within the Cardassian state and there is no one person or group or entity which represents that state. So in a way, it's this, Cardassia uh, uh, it, 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 is power that's irrespective of who's wielding it in a way. In other words, power is wielding the Cardassians rather than the Cardassians wielding power, I would say. Well, I think, yeah, I think that's... I mean, this is very Foucauldian, but... Well, no, I I agree with you, but I think think that, that, you know, there's more to it, of course. You know, I I think that what you see with Cardassians... I mean, there's... I, I don't know. I think about the scene from The Wire where Garrick is discussing... Cardassian literature with Bashir and and the whole point yeah. of Cardassian literature at least a strain of Cardassian literature that that Garrick seems to enjoy is they know the ending and the the joy is sort of the repetition of how they get there yeah and in a similar sense I think that you kind of see that with Cardassian justice quote unquote yeah with how that's set up because I don't you know and the interesting thing is I like the fact that the show doesn't ever really go into the question of whether or not the P, uh, the the Cardassians that are put on trial are guilty or not, right? Because I could very easily see a form of you know so, a form of criminal court that develops where 
you know, you don't bring someone to trial unless yeah. you know they're guilty. And that doesn't imply, of course, that, you know, you haven't done the uh, 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 research, you haven't yes. done the investigation, you haven't gathered the evidence, a decision has been made, and then the trial is actually, you know... The public form of The that. public form of that, and, and, and the, the, you only bring people to trial that have been proven to be guilty. Now, I think that in the case of O'Brien, of course, that's not true, because as we understand it and as we find out, the Cardassians or whoever, you know, someone in the Cardassian... Um, government or the Obsidian Order or whoever it is. I mean, that's that's kind of the open question about the episode as well, is we don't actually know who did this. There's an implication yeah. that it's the military, but it could have been someone else. That, in a similar way to how Cardassian literature works, where they know the ending and the, 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 yeah. the joy is, getting, is, is finding out how they get there, that's how Cardassian justice works. You know, they, they come into it with every trial being a guilty verdict, and the joy is finding out exactly how they did it. And whether or not, I mean, the person cries for mercy at the end or whether they have – I mean because, you know, uh, you talk about whether someone who is quote-unquote innocent ever gets tried. And I think that they would cons- – you know, the, the – I think they would consider that an irrelevant question. Well, well, they would, the way the lawyer seems to frame it, they would almost consider themselves martyrs to the state, you know. In other words, it doesn't really – you know, yes, I'm not guilty of this particular crime, but at the same time – you know, my death, my is going to show the greater glory of the state and the state being more powerful than the in- the individual doesn't seem to matter as much. Well, there's something very Stalinist about it. And yeah. I think that that's kind of what you see. There's a there's a brutalism to Cardassia. I mean, you even see that in their architecture. You see that in the way in which, you know, we finally get a glimpse of, of you know, what the Cardassian um, Cardassia prime looks yeah. like and and you know i mean of course it's on a television budget on a syndicated television show from the 1990s yeah, so it's not going to look that great but they do a pretty good job of showing exactly how sort of overwhelming it is i mean you've got these large screens everywhere and yeah. things are broadcast i mean it's very everything's it's, very claustrophobic very dark from stuff that Gar- Gar- from the way that garrick talks about how cold it is on deep space nine you get the sense that it's very hot and humid everywhere in Cardassia. Yeah, and and you know it's 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 funny because the the production designer for this episode, you know, just a lot of the 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 um, look of the courtroom came from like 1984. Okay, no, so you get yeah. you know you got these big screens. There's Big Brother everywhere. You know, it's it's that kind of thing. And so yeah, I think you're right. I think that that there is a, I think there's a tension in Cardassian society which is slowly being revealed that. Yes, there, there. It is very collectivist and it is very sort of Stalinist, but at the same time, it's also. It, I mean, again, I think it's it's very easily modeled on on a certain strain of, of sort of Soviet the way that the the Soviets worked, where you know, yes, they're they're collectivists and everyone's equal, but some people are more equal than others, yeah. and and there's also a lot of infighting. There's a lot of politics, and the average person perhaps just doesn't get involved in it because they don't want to, frankly, they don't want to get put on track. Yeah. They don't want to be noticed. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, the way that, you know, Goldicott and Garrick and stuff have talked about, you know, their ambitions. Um, it seems that Cardassians who become great are great because they are such exemplars of the state. Now, as we're finding out, one of the difficult things about it is that there are different interpretations of what the state is. I mean, Garrick certainly has a very different view of what being an exemplar of, of Cardassia means than Goldukat does, than the uh, the judge does, than the lawyer does. But I think that their I think that their ultimate aims are probably, you know, I, I mean, personally, I think they have different aims. I think that Goldukat wants power and security and, and comfort in a way that Garrick perhaps doesn't. Yeah. But I think that they're they're they are still working towards the Cardassian state or whatever that means, right? Yeah, they 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 do have a sense of service about them. But I think that you you know, for example, you know, the 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 Nestor in this episode, which is sort of like the defense attorney, you know, that's the closest analog. No, no, no. Oda's the Nestor. Oh sorry, uh, the um uh conservator. Conservator. Yeah, that well, you know, they're fake names and I get them mixed up. <laughs> and uh, then what was the judge called? I don't remember. I think it was just the judge. Let's I thought with... she was called the Archon or something, but oh, that yeah, reminds I... me of Return of the Archon, so I don't know. <laughs> it could be, I don't know. Uh, yeah, and and you know, so so you get the conservator who who is obviously that sort of like flamboyant defense attorney type, but the show <laughs> He's hilarious. Well, no, he is, and I think that that you know the show is 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 turning that sort of thing on its head, and it's 
it's making this kind of character, this very flamboyant, over-the-top, dramatic character, not someone who is trying to to make himself stand out or make an argument for his client's freedom. It's really about using that sort of theatrical actorly techniques to exalt the state and to really, yeah. you know, everything that he does is, oh, no, this isn't going well for Cardassia. <laughs> what's happening? You know, and that's that's what's so interesting about it. I have to say, we, we you know, we talked about about guest stars, you know, are not hamming it up enough. I mean, he chews the scenery in this. The bit would, you know, you flatter me. That bit, I mean, he, he was yeah, very oh, yeah. But yeah, you know. He's great. He talks about how his role, I mean, his role almost seems more of a counselor. Kind of remembered me. Kind of reminded me of Falkhorn Lagorn. <laughs> well, no, you know, he is that, you know, boisterous. He is the closest, he's the Cardassian equivalent of, of, of a blustery Southern lawyer. I, mean, <laughs> I kind of wish he did have a Southern accent. Yeah. I think it would have been a little too over the top. But yeah, still. but, you know, he, he he's doing that personality. But, I mean, he, he reminds me almost of, um, you know, priests going to death row inmates, you know, who counsel them and how their role is to get the condemned to, you know, accept their guilt and to, you know, w- have that desire for forgiveness and atonement and how to face their execution with some dignity remaining. Yeah. I mean, that's one of the major roles of the conservator in in this, you know, which I think is very interesting. And I mean, in this case, again— you know, his aims go against, you know, O'Brien's aims and our aims, frankly. Um, sure, yeah. I mean, we want to see O'Brien, you know, become free. Yeah, but at the same time, you know, so he is an antagonist in that way. But in the same time, I think it is a very, again, given that it seems to have, I wouldn't call it spiritual because the Cardassians are not a spiritual people unless, you know, the, I mean, they, they – the state is their religion in a way, but, yeah. you know, there is that element to his role, and I mean, I, I think that's a very interesting thing. I mean, his his job in the courtroom seems to be, you know, not a—I def- mean, they—, they well, I, I think of thinking of him as a defense attorney is a mistake that the Federation characters seem to make that— Well, yeah, because they have no context to put this in, yeah. right? And I think that, you know— I mean, I, I love the end of it where, where you know, the whole thing is revealed and, and, and uh, uh, O'Brien goes free because, of course, the Cardassians are going to be embarrassed. But, you know, he is he's told he wins a case. And that's a very Federation way of looking yeah. at it. To him, he lost, you know, and, and he thinks he's going to be murdered because. Yeah, of he's 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 failed the state. I mean, and, and I, I, I think it's possible he will be murdered because of it. You I, know? I think so. I mean, quietly. I don't think that. I mean, it's it, it, no, not quietly. He's going to have a trial in which he failed his job as conservator. Maybe I, you know, I don't know. Well, that's kind of a far afield question. <laughs> that, that that's not really relevant. But yeah, but yeah. I think yeah, I think it could go either way, right? And because obviously he's famous on Cardassian, you know. Uh, but I guess you know. The real the real question about the episode though is is sort of you know I like the way that it it takes what we know from like chain of command for example and sort of says okay but how can we make this more horrifying mm. than chain of command you know because we didn't really get a sense I mean chain of command you know I remember we both had problems with the episode but I think we both liked it um it 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 didn't really show a lot of what was going on before he was sort of being tortured. I mean, you know, yeah, he gets his clothes ripped off and whatever, but you know, this whole business about the tooth getting ripped out and you know, just just kind of seeing exactly how impersonal the whole thing yeah. is, how it's designed to strip O'Brien of any sort of individuality or sense of himself. That that this is probably how all Cardassians get treated. I mean, yeah. What really freaked me out about that? So you have this, you know, situation without explanation. They're tearing his clothes off. They're roughly putting him in chair. They're extracting a tooth, you know, and all of that. And suddenly the Archon appears and she apologizes for the way he's been treated and says, you know, we're going to treat you well. We're not going to harm you. And then you realize that wasn't even torture. That was just like that was just processing. That was just, that was just the equivalent of getting fingerprinted and photographed. Yeah, you know, yeah. Like if they were going to treat him bad. Badly that that you know, that's what really just that was the most disturbing part of that for me. I mean that was extremely effective, and I mean of course the scene itself is very difficult to watch. Again, it's it's watching a character that we like get just you know brutalized. 
And that's what I kind of like about it is that, yeah. you know, it's it's so effective in, in, you know, obviously our sympathies are with O'Brien throughout the episode. But the episode plays with that, of course, because, you know, we have, you know, Keiko who's there. And I think Keiko is great in this episode. You know, she's oh, a yeah. character that, I, I, I don't know, I'm not usually a big Keiko fan. I think that, that the show kind of uses her as a foil in ways that I think is, yeah. is a little... She's more more of a minor character than maybe she should have could have been. Well, I think that the pro- I mean the problem with Keiko in a lot of ways is that she only appears w- mostly when yeah. O'Brien needs like an an obstacle, and so you know we only see her when she's being obstinate, yeah. and it paints her character as sort. I mean, it's 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 problematic, of course, because of the ways in which you know television and fiction uses female characters. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. but. You know, like, but in this episode, she gets to go out of that box and she really gets to show a different side of herself, a steely side of herself. And I, I, I like it. I really like the scene when Cisco and Odo are talking to her and, you know, Cisco's was like, well, we're going to do all that we can. To, and she's like, no, tell me what's going on. He's going to have a bad, you know, he's going to be hurt. He's going to be tor-. And Cisco's was like, well, and then Odo just says, says like, yes, he's probably going to be tortured. You know, he's not having a good time. He's going to be. And, you know, obviously she's upset, but I mean, she doesn't want the bullshit, you know, she knows just as she says, you know, you know, O'Brien, you know, Miles has told her all of the story. She knows what's happening to him and she doesn't want to be bullshit, you know. Absolutely. She is as much of a starfly person, a professional as anybody else in that room, you know, and. Well, and I think also it, it, it kind of builds on her reactions to, to O'Brien's death in Armageddon game because, you know, she was the one who was saying, no, he's not dead. Look, he's, he, he doesn't drink yeah. coffee. What, what is going on? You know, that, I think that kind of, you know, her character, I think, and I think that's, you know, it's a larger question. I mean, I think the, the appearance of Golovec in this episode as well, where, you know, a few episodes ago with the whole Vol problem, he didn't even get a name. And now suddenly here he is again. And he's like, Hey, we talked before you don't remember me. And it's like, yeah, the audience probably doesn't. I remember don't remember that, that part actually either. Uh, right. Either you, don't, part. you don't remember that. And so I, I, that's what I really like about the way that deep space nine handles characterization yeah. because it does build on itself in in a very different way than the next generation did. Mm, yeah. I you know the the only other thing that, that we haven't talked about before we move on to to the season uh finale the Gem Hadar is just kind of of you know we've talked about I mean you you've made this comparison more than once about how the Cardassians are basically competent Romulans. Yeah. And I think again you see that in this episode where this is a this is a plan that is only as complicated as it needs to be, yeah. right? Uh, I think that the, the obviously the only reason why they fail is because they need to. I think that yeah, this is the way that they get out of it by play. You know, and that's the interesting thing. I think that that you know, the show is playing by the rules, maybe a, a little, even a little bit more than TNG would have. You know, I think that Cisco realizes that that being obstinate and trying to get O'Brien out through through legal means is not really going to work, and so they they investigate and find out that yeah. there's this whole plot and. You know, Boone is actually a Cardassian in disguise, which is very disturbing. Because yeah, I mean that, and that was what's very interesting in the in the scene when Keiko was saying, you know, Miles told me about you know people would go and be tortured by the Cardassians and they'd come back different. So obviously, yeah, yeah, yeah that's yeah. foreshadowing this. But then, what terrifies me is how many of those guys are actually sleepers. Well, that's the thing. Yeah, yeah. like you know. uh What's his name is not the only one. There are others, and not only that, but but you know, possibly the military has sleepers. Mm. The city order has sleepers. You know, the the civilian yeah. government. I mean, you know, that's the thing about Cardassian. I think that's the reason why it works so well is that you know it really is set up as these. You know, if you look at the Federation and say, well, Starfleet and the Federation and the Federation Council and whoever, you know, they they all may have different goals and aims, but at the end of the day, they're all working together for the common goal of exploration and defense, and you know. Pursuit yeah. of scientific knowledge and, and all that kind of stuff. Whereas in Cardassia, it seems like, yeah, the Obsidian Order, the military, the civilian government all want to exalt the state, but they might have very different ideas about what that yeah. state means. And so when Boone comes in, it's like, what is the end game here? Like, yeah. what what is the reason for this? And I think that, you know, that's kind of the scary thing about the episode at the end of the day is it's so well constructed. And you yeah. look at it and you say they were willing to use a sleeper agent that they, you know, set up eight years ago to embarrass one guy for, for what reason? Like, you know, and I think the reason yeah, is to get they to- want to be, they want to give the Federation a black eye. You know, yeah. they, they want to, uh, uh, 
because really I don't think that you know they they kind of make this intimation that the point well. of this the point of this is that the Cardassians want to show that Starfleet is 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 helping the Maquis. Yeah, and yeah, yeah, that yeah. would be and great. Going to bolster that, you know, but and the Maquis' appearance in this but, is awesome. Oh yeah, we didn't even talk about that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and that foreshadows something that happens a lot later okay. too. Um, where, yeah, I mean, and why Bashir of all people? You know, like yeah, no, that and that was a that was it. Yeah, this is a again, and yeah, we never find out really who's in charge of this exact plot. The judge knows from the second she sees you know him that okay, so. But what I really like is that Cardassia doesn't possibly lose in this. Either they've managed to connect the Federation as arming the Maquis, and here is a Federation, you know, the chief of ops of DS9 is arming the Maquis. Yeah. Or, you know, Cardassia has shown tremendous, you know, lenience and, you know, has done a very nice thing for the Federation, and now the Federation owes them for, you know, like, no matter what, like, Cardassia wins in the end. Yeah, Cardassia is dangerous, and, Mm -hmm. you know, stay tuned, I guess. (laughs) Let's talk about the Jem'Hadar. Okay. So I'm not going to say anything. Okay. Well, this is going to be a very short episode then. Um, This. I just want your reactions. uh, Well, I mean, it's funny. We've been. So finally, we we learned something about the Dominion or the Dominion show themselves, you know, and this has definitely been something that I'd been curious about but frankly had forgotten about in all the excitement of the past few episodes i mean that was fairly deliberate i would say i I think that's by design they 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 perfectly paced the dominion you know just mentioning it here and there and then suddenly you know when they show themselves it's horrifying what i think has been what i think is really interesting is we've been talking these past few weeks about what's cardassia doing and you know that that's so cute in light of this episode, in a way. I mean, we we have seen you know Cardassi making these little plots and stuff, and suddenly the Dominion, I mean, destroys an entire starship, you know, in this episode. Not only a starship, but a galaxy class yeah. starship, which is the Enterprise. Which it, that's not an accident either. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, it, 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 the Dominion are dangerous, right? I mean, that, that's the point of the episode, I think, you know, the, 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 this is something I think that Star Trek, this is new to Star Trek. I mean, I don't think that, that they've really done a very good job at a slow buildup of something like this. And, and I think that, you know, it's not that slow in retrospect. I mean, they sort of mentioned the Dominion a couple of times in passing and then this episode suddenly shit gets real and you're like, whoa, okay, what's going on? Um, but at the same time, building up the the Jem Hadar to be so dangerous, and and frankly, yeah. you know, the fact of the matter is, this is an enemy that is is is. I think this is the most dangerous enemy that probably we've seen since the Borg. Yeah, I was going to say they're Borg levels, frankly. You know, they 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 obviously are able to very easily destroy a galaxy glass starship, which is shocking. You know, I think that that you know one of the things that Iris Stephen Bear said about this episode is that he wanted to make the point that if this had been the Enterprise, it would yeah. have been destroyed. Like it didn't matter who the captain was, it didn't matter what the crew were doing. Yeah, it would have been destroyed because the Jem'Hadar are just that powerful. Yeah, from what we're told about the, I mean, we only see the captain of this that ship very briefly from Dax's reaction to him. I mean, and he all seems of that. a little bit of a dandy, but you know, you know, he's supposed, but you know, for uh, yeah, it's true. I mean, we're told that the uh, one of the, you know, that the Enterprise itself and Picard are at one of the fronts. There's another ship, and this, and you know, from the context, the three are more or less equal. Anytime we've seen, you know other galaxy class starships you know they are at that level of competence yeah yeah and and you know that's kind of the thing about the episode is that it's a very slow build i mean in a, in a similar sense to how the show had sort of intimated that this thing called the dominion was out there we didn't know what it was i yeah. mean we still and that's the thing about the episode is that you know i kind of yeah i kind of don't think this is a great episode like i think that what it does to the show i think you know sort of you know, I, I made a joke after we watched the episode um, that, uh, and we don't always watch um, the episodes together, but it just so happened that we've been watching them together for the past few weeks. That uh, I, I made a joke and said, "Hey, Richard, you remember the end of uh, that episode in the first season with the alien creatures and in, in in the the bodies, and you know they never mentioned them again." And I was like, "That's what happens to the Dominion." 
And I, I played it as straight as long as I could. And Richard was kind of like, what? <laughs> and then I kind of laughed and was like, no, that doesn't happen here. You know, and I think that that would have been a fundamental, like, you know, that would have been a fundamental betrayal of the audience at that point. Because, oh, yeah. of course, we need to know more about the Dominion. This is something that is obviously, yeah. you know, I think, I, you know, whether or not this becomes like a big part of the show, you know, that's still an open question. I mean, I, I what what do you think well, about that? Well, I, I, I mean, in a lot of ways... You know, this is if I didn't know that this was the season finale, you know, because I knew that something big was, you know, must happen on a season finale in a show like this. I I was fairly certain, you know, it would be some kind of cliffhanger. Um, And and if you remember the season finale of the first season, that was in the hands of the prophets, which I think is is an interesting way that that DS9 is kind of approaching its its season finales because it's not really making them cliffhangers, but it's it's sort of resetting the table in a sense. Yeah, in a way like. This, you know, we, we've, we've had most of season two had a plot. It was largely focused on, you know, the Bajoran Cardassian thing. And the Cardassians have some kind of plan. And we don't know what it is, but they're making their overtures and they're playing it very close, you know, another that. And, you know, this episode is saying, oh, by the way, here's what season three is really going to. I mean, this episode was is a very whiplash episode in a very effective way. Again, if I didn't know this was the season finale, it's set up like a very light comedic episode. You know, Quark and Cisco and Nog and Jake on a camping trip, and, you know, Quark and Cisco have their differences, and obviously they're going to get captured by somebody and have an adventure, but, you know, they'll get closer together as a result of their captivity, and they'll leave learning a lesson about each other. I mean, that's the episode that this episode starts out being, you know, and if this had been a mid-season episode, that would be the end of it. And But it turns out the people who capture them are so dangerous that they change the entire level of the show, frankly. I mean, the Cardassians are, you know, yes, they are a conquering empire, but they don't see, but the Dominion owns the Gamma Quadrant, it seems, you know. They are who the Cardassians kind of want to be, and maybe if they are unchecked. And I think that, you know, well, it's interesting you say that, because I think that that there's a, there's, I don't think you're right, mm-hmm. um, but I don't think you're wrong either. I think that... Yeah, we that, have, we don't quite have enough information. We don't know enough about the Dominion at this point to, to know exactly what they are, right? And I think that, that, the thing about this episode in particular is that by design, it it's again set, it's resetting the table, it's it's changing the game, but it's not removing any of the players. Yeah, you know the Cardassians are still there, and Ooh. and now we have this other thing that that could become a big problem. Maybe will not become a big problem. We just don't know. But it's it's. It's making the galaxy out to be a much more dangerous place for the Federation than it ever has been, I think, before. Well, what I think about this is this episode very interestingly makes the Cardassians the wild card. Because, you know, at this point, you know, the Dominion wants to, you know, wants to make some kind of action against the Federation. Now, if the Dominion get the Cardassians as an ally, the Federation is pretty fucked because, you know— the Cardassians fighting the Federation was bad enough and give them Dominion resources. If the Federation manages to convince the Cardassians, like, look, no, these are people from another galaxy who want to conquer both of us, maybe they have a fight. But yeah, it, it puts everything in a very we know that we know that the Ferengi have been having negotiations with the you know, with the with the Dominion. And, and from what we can tell, those are probably going to go very smoothly because it's in the Dominion's interest to just, you know, if they can make the you know, the Ferengi be administrators of their business interest on the, you know, in the Alpha Quadrant. That's very easy for them. That's a very easy victory. But we don't know if the Cardassians have been negotiating with them. It's very pos- – I mean, we've been talking about how there are different factions within Cardassia. It's possible that one of the – it's – I mean, it's almost a certain certainty that one of them has been in touch with the Dominion, I would say. Well, you know, it's interesting to me because, you know, I think a lot about how – the Dominion has been teased a couple times in the second season and how sort of nebulous the idea is. And I think that's by design, you know, you know, this, you know, I don't know. I mean, I think that, that, that my sort of understand, I mean, obviously I know what happens. (laughs) I'm, I'm kind of talking across purposes here, but, uh, which is something that apparently a lot of listeners enjoy. So you'll really enjoy this episode. Um, I like that you're all like, you know, by the way, you know, this is very indulging me because I don't know. Everybody has been so awesome with, 
like not spoiling me or being very careful to not say certain things. And I do really appreciate that because I'm really liking the show at this point. And especially, you know, again, if this episode is, okay, this is what you're going to really enjoy season three in a few months. You know, if that's what this episode is saying, then. Well, and I think too, to a large degree, I mean, I think that everybody that listens to the show and, and me particularly, mm-hmm. um, you know, wish that we could watch this show for the first time again. <laughs> so I think, I think it's fun just from that perspective. And I think also you have some interesting insights. Yeah. Uh, but the real, you know, the real kind of, uh, you know, I think open question about this at this point is how does the dominion actually like control the gamma quadrant, you know, because yeah. there's, there's, and this is where the, you know, there's a lot, there's so much to talk about. I mean, like there's the, on the one hand of on the one side of this, there's Federation naivete playing into this again, because of course the Federation is, uh, uh, set up as an exploration and scientific mission diplomacy, you know, they think that, well, how could you stop us from, from being scientific in the Gamma yeah. Quadrant? And, you know, from my perspective, you look at this, and I don't know about your perspective, but it's kind of really arrogant of the Federation to think that the Dominion is going to be okay with them flying ships around and doing yeah. scientific missions, that- you know? On the other hand, um, I don't know exactly what presence the dominion has in the gamma well, quadrant because we haven't seen them before so well, you know there, there's an there's an implication here that the dominion maybe doesn't have as much control over the gamma quadrant as they say they do or i you know who knows but it's very much in the dominion i mean this episode leaves the federation me with a very paranoid feel especially with the the reveal of you know eris is having you know actually been this Dominion spy, you know, and she doesn't even seem the least bit, wor- like, she seems amused by, the, you know, them finding her out. I mean, you know, it, it, it's very interesting that they, you know, they figure out that, you know, the Dominion let them leave with her and escape and all of that, you know, to plant her, but they might just have as easily have had her be att- intended to find out. Again, we talked about the Cardassians, you know, winning either way, you know, at, you know, however long she gets to spy for, you know, that's more information that they may, frankly, already know already. Um, well, that, I mean, it, it's, I mean, there, if there's one thing, I mean, we'll talk about the actual structure of the yeah. episode because I think it's really well done. I mean, although some of the beginning parts of it yeah. are a little boring, but, you know, I think that, that what we see, I mean, a couple things. Number one, I think it's interesting that Eris and the Jem'Hadar are not the same species ostensibly. Yeah. You know, that's interesting because that, that tells us that the Dominion is not a typical Star Trek yeah. empire, right? I mean, you know, the, the Klingons don't have spies that are not Klingons. The Cardassians don't have spies that are not Cardassians. So what does that mean? And then the other thing here, of course, is, you know, the one the one criticism of the episode i have it well not the one criticism of the episode but one of the criticisms of the episode i have is that it paints the dominion i think as as a little too powerful at this point i think that the show oversells Mm. it and 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 i think that you know it kind of almost has to back down from that because you know if one if three small Jem'Hadar ships can take down a galaxy-class starship, then yeah. what the hell chance does the Federation have of stopping this if, you know, if the Dominion is 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 dead set on stopping the Federation from in- exploring the Gamma Quadrant? Like, you know, that that's kind of the one problem yeah, I have yeah, with yeah. it. And also Eris disappearing at the end and where does she go? It's a little too magic-y for me. But... Yeah. I, and and that that is fair. But, you know, again, at the same time, you know... It's left with a paranoid feel. If if this is just them using camouflage and, you know, protective coloration, making them seem more of a threat than they really are, you know, it's still effective in that way. You know, I mean, much of the, you know, much of what the Federation will do about looking into the Dominion will find out, well, are they really as powerful as they say they are or are they just putting up a front? I mean, that will be interesting to figure out, too. I, yeah, I think so. And I mean, you know, it makes me think of, you know, almost like a Roman Empire sort of allegory yeah. where, you know, I mean, did the Roman, I mean, like if you went to England in the year, you know, 100, yeah. uh, the Romans were certainly like in control there, but how, you know, like how much were they in control? I mean, did they have a large military presence there? Did they not? I mean, yeah, like, the further from the seat of power you get, the harder it is to, you know. Right. Like the Federation, you know, that's kind of the thing is that like all of the polities of, of the Alpha Quadrant are sort of like understandable 
analogs to like 20th, 21st century nation states, mm. right? And they have a government and they have a structure and there's a military presence everywhere and et cetera, et cetera. Whereas the Dominion so far, I mean, doesn't really seem to have that. Whatever, so All that we really know about them, um, I'm co- from the Pell episode, you know, when they're talking to those red aliens and, you know, they want a certain amount of uh, resources and we're told that the, the Dominion is the only one who really has that, you know, and if you want to get resources in that book, you have to talk to them. Now, yes, does that mean they control the Gamma Quadrant? Does that mean they're simply the biggest group? Does that mean they certain just have the most tula berries or whatever they are? Like, it, it's, it is a little ambiguous, you know? Are they just a trade organization? Are they just the mafia, you know, basically? Or are they something more, you know? It is, it is ambiguous. But again, at this point, they are still, you know, no matter what their intentions are, they still are scary, you know, and they still are, you know, set against hurting the Federation, you know? Yeah, and I think the other thing, too, is, you know, we have whoever this Dominion spy is, and then we have the Jem'Hadar, which are ostensibly the military, and then we have the founders. Like, you know, there's this mention of them, and I think that that, you know, it makes me think of when you were talking about the Dominion as some sort of mafia, like, you know, are the founders essentially, you know, the godfather, and they're people you know like who knows yeah. right i mean that's kind of the implication but it could very easily be a different thing altogether yeah no like it, 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 it you know in the godfather they talk about how there are five families you know other five founders you know each a different family and the gemitar is one and you know whoever eris's people are or another you know and all like that like that's almost the implication i get from that but i know. think that listeners will be very interested in that speculation okay is marlon brando in the show uh, yeah, he actually becomes a main uh, protagonist in the seventh season. He plays Bajor? Yes. <laughs> That's really rude. I know. Um, well, and I think- Bajor is another interesting case, though, because, you know, in the Mirror Universe, they very easily, very, very quickly seem to align with Cardassia and, sure. you know, everybody else in order to get back at the people that— if the if the Dominion approaches the provisional government and says, you know— We'll help you get rid of Cardassia and the Federation if you join. Would Bajor take that? I don't know. I, I mean, think there are elements in the provisional government that might. Possibly. We don't know, right? I mean, that's that's the question at this point. And I, I think it yeah. And I think it really depends on on what the Dominion turns out to be. Yeah. I I I mean I hope I am satisfied by what the answers are, but at this point I really like the questions. I think you will be. Good. It turns out to be like a, a domino club, and they just play dominoes all day, and they don't want the Federation like bothering them. That, that could be. Uh-uh. You know, and I think the other interesting thing, too, about the episode is, is kind of the reveal that the Dominion know about the Federation and kind of know a lot about what's been going on, you know? And I think that— yeah. How do they know that? I mean, you know, like there's a lot of interesting questions about this that I think, you know, obviously will be answered in in, in future episodes. But, you know, right now the Dominion is just a bunch of questions. And I kind of like that. You know, it's again, it's it's a resetting the table episode, but it doesn't really tell us what the meal is going to be. And I I like that. Yeah. No, no, that that's true. You know, we we know that there's going we at this point, I think the show has shown most of its threads if not you know all of its major plots in a way um and you know now i think it's i'm ready for it to start spinning out like if the first two seasons were set up i'm ready for the kind of it to begin yeah yeah and i mean again i don't want to oversell yeah this doesn't become babylon 5 no no i know but but the third season is not you know one uninterrupted you know narrative or whatever but uh well i don't actually think that was true for the third season of Babylon 5 anyway, but eh, whatever. We don't need to talk about Babylon, <laughs> Babylon 5. This is not a Babylon No, no, no. I mean, this isn't a 2010s show. You know, this isn't a 2000s show. You yeah. Know, it, it does still, you know, it is still episodic. It's a 90s with, show. Yeah. Well, and I think, you know, that's kind of what's interesting about the, the, the structure of this episode in particular is that, you know, like I said, I mean, I think that, that this, pro- this may have worked a little better if it wasn't the season finale yeah. because I think that, you know, we expect it. We expect something to happen. I mean, I think In the Hands of the Prophets was a perfect example of the kind of season finale. And if if this is definitely in that vein again, where it's not a cliffhanger, it's not like, you know, but it's 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 setting, setting itself up for something else, right, in the second season and the third season now. So, 
you know, the fake out at the beginning, although this is a lighthearted comedy episode where Quark and Cisco learn to get along and learn values about how much the Ferengi yeah. are like the humans and how much the humans are like the Ferengi, <laughs> blah, blah, blah. And, and Nog and Jake start making out. I don't know. But uh, it, it's not That's that. That's what ep- they did in the woods. <laughs> it's not that episode, right? And so I think that this may have worked a little better if this had not been the season finale yeah. because I don't think we would have been expecting something bigger. You know, so I think that's one of the criticisms of this episode is I think the actual structure of it works really well. But the first 10, 15 yeah. minutes before the Jem'Hadar and, and Eris show up feel a little bit like you're waiting for the other shoe to drop in a yeah. way that I don't think would be true if this was episode 20. Yeah, yeah. No, that that that's that is a fair criticism, but I can't really see of. I mean, maybe if they just made. Yeah, it, it, it's. But 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 there almost seems to be a different timeness to it in a way because, you know, I don't know if viewers in the '90s would have been expecting that in the same way you know we do now. Again, we see if we see a season finale, you know, we know it's going to be something huge. You know, uh, you know, especially knowing the way that the rest of the series shakes out. I mean, we talked about how TNG handled its uh, episode it's it's cliffhangers and they could just be a very large episode i mean time's arrow wasn't a you know world-changing episode but it was a fairly large one so we could see but this tng didn't really have world-changing episodes no 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 and that's you know i mean the show, you know they did things like the borg and the Klingon yeah. Civil war that that intimated that there would be big changes but you know at the end of the day TNG was still extremely episodic and while yeah. it did in, it did have some serialized elements especially in the character level you know at the end of the day uh, you know to, they were to, the arcs to, were slower you well know, to in a way. well to beat the to beat the table metaphor to death i mean at the end of the day while they weren't resetting the table they wanted to make the table look almost exactly the way it was before all this happened and so that's what TNG was doing and i don't think deep space nine is doing that yeah no they they it is more comfortable with permanent large-scale changes that don't just, you know, appear as callbacks in later episodes or something like that. You know, if the situation on the Klingon homeworld changes every, you know, so often, it's slower changes, it's more subtle changes, it's, you know, it isn't as dramatic as this. Yeah, exactly. I, You know, and, and the other thing, too, I mean, is is I really want to talk about Cisco and, and Quark and yeah. Quark's kind of conversation. But, well, that's not even really a conversation. It's a speech in a way. It's a speech. Yeah. This is, and, you know, all of this, came, you know, this entire, you know, all of Quark's points about, you know, even though Quark comes, you know, on this totally, you know, mercenary reason and, you know, just do, is trying to, you know, obviously suck up to Cisco. When he says the bit, you know, about like, look, you know, you talk about, you know, you have this big federation talk about how you're, you like all people, but you really only like people who are like you. And like, you know, and his point about like, listen, you were just as bad at us with, you know, capitalism because. I no, didn't. no, that is not what Quark says at all. I know. What does he say? He says that that. The, the humans were worse well, well, than the well, Ferengi. Well, well, well that, that's the point he comes to. He says, you know, you may have been just as capitalist as we are, but, you know, and you may have transcended this, but if you look at our histories, we never had wars the way you did. We never had slavery. You know, we never had, and... Concentration camps. Yeah, and that's a very, you know, it is, it's interesting that even the, you know, the Ferengi are an attempt at moral capitalism. You know, the rules of acquisition are a way of, putting a code of ethics and morality onto and almost in in almost a religious way you know it's treated like a sacred text there are commentaries you know well i guess you know i don't know that i necessarily agree with that because i think that you know if if everybody expects to get cheated is cheating moral you know i mean i that that's i don't know is it is cheating cheating if everyone expects to get cheated at the end if you know that you're going to be if you know that a deal is based on whoever can bullshit the best, you know, but the deal is done under these terms. I mean, it. You it, know, we've we've seen we've seen Quark object to certain things about deal. You know, the one where. Yeah, but I would argue that Quark is probably not the best for. That's 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 fair, and too. I think the show is starting to to tell us that. You know, I think the the thing about the Ferengi is. You know, Iris Stephen Bear is very interested in in redeeming them in some sense and yeah. making them not a joke. And I think that, you know, the Ferengi do have problems. I don't think the Ferengi are great. But I think that Quark's point here is is kind mm. of true and kind of not true. Because, of course, you know, 
the implication is that the Ferengi were never as bad as humans, right? I mean, they never had concentration camps. Yeah. They never had slavery. I mean, we, we'll take Quark at his word for that. Yeah. You know, I don't think we have any uh, real reason to to not think that that's true. Yeah. But, you know, at the same time, the Ferengi ostensibly have variously been the same for a long time. And the Ferengi are not great. You know, no. I, they're greedy. They're they're they they keep their women very very subjugated. I mean, there are things about the Ferengi yes. that are that are very bad, and if they don't reach the level of depravity that humans did, um, the fact of the matter is humans don't do that stuff anymore. And so, I like that. You know, yes, to one degree, Iris Stephen Bear is very interested in redeeming the Ferengi and kind of uh, uh, recontextualizing our understanding of them. On the other hand, I think that it's a little more. Um, great than that because yeah. the humans at the end of the day are better than they used to be and i don't think you could make that argument for the ferengi i guess you know the thing is that i mean this is obviously something that quark has thought for a long time and of course it is filtered through him being a ferengi it is filtered through him being annoyed at aspects of cisco yeah he has some good points in here and you know, if he isn't a hundred percent accurate, I think at the end of the episode when you know he and Cisco seem to have come to some sort of an understand. I mean, Cisco at the very at the end of the day realizes that you know maybe he will never agree with Ferengi society or the rules of acquisition, and maybe he and Quark are never going to be best friends. But he hasn't given them the fair shake that he would a Vulcan or a Klingon or anybody you know like that who as Quark says, thinks like him. And I think the episode ends with him at least trying to make that understanding. I mean, and frankly, it's not for nothing that Quark turns out to be the one who unmasks, you know, Eris's true identity, really. That's true as well. And I think that, you know, uh, uh, that wouldn't have happened if, yeah, if and, that had been a Starfleet person, right? Because, and, of course, the whole reason why yeah. Quark discovers it is he's trying to take it apart to sell it. Yeah, so, you know, I, I and, and I think that's maybe what, what we're supposed to get out of that is that, you know, while the Ferengi do have problems, you know, at the end of the day, just because they have problems doesn't mean that they also don't have value. Yeah. And I think that maybe that's what what the show is trying to do with the Ferengi in a certain sense. Is yeah. Saying, you know, because I think back to to that that scene with Jake and Cisco from from maybe, I don't know, the beginning of the season or somewhere in there. I forget what episode it is where, you know, Jake is talking about Nog and, and, and you know, Cisco basically says, look, you know, we've never been able to find any sort of common ground with the Ferengi. They're just very, very different from us. Yeah. And at on the one hand, you know, that's kind of very cynical and anti Star Trek because of course yeah. this is the franchise that thinks that everybody has value and you can get a common ground with anybody. And, you know, on a certain sense, I think that maybe this is the show getting that common ground with them to a large degree. Yeah. I mean it's very clear that Nog and Jake see no problems, you know, be one being Frangie, one being human. You know, they they are thickest thieves together i mean and also dax we see as very you know i remember that one episode where she basically you know kira's basically saying like how can you hang and she's like look once you once you get over the fact that you know they're crude and they're gonna cheat you they're actually a lot of fun yeah because i mean it is that's again as i've said you know time and again if you want to go and have a very good time Quarks would be is a very good place to do that. You know, everyone is always seems to be enjoying themselves at Quarks. You know, that's true. He does provide that. That's true. Yeah, and I think that that that's kind of what maybe what we're supposed to start getting from the Ferengi. Yeah, you know, I think it's interesting that I don't necessarily really like Ferengi episodes. I think that the show is kind of working across purposes because the episodes which examine the Ferengi that aren't quote-unquote Ferengi episodes or Quark episodes, I think do a really good job of what they were trying to do with the Ferengi. But when they actually give Quark an actual episode, it becomes like a bad comedy. And I just, you know, it's like it's working across purposes for whatever reason. I don't know. Uh, Yeah, I think it's, you know, I don't know where you think this is going to go. I obviously know where this goes. I think a lot of the listeners know where this goes unless they're watching this for the first time. Um, but hello, my brothers and sisters. We'll see, right? Yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm down to watch more of this. I'm wow, what a shock! So glad that season two is over. Like, yeah, you can't even. It's I, not. It wasn't a bad season. No, it just felt like a. Re- it just felt a lot longer than. Well, I think you know, in some respects, it felt like treading water. It felt yeah. like you were waiting for the real show to start, and some of yeah. that was, I think, because of the expectations that I put on you about the show. You I jerk. mean, 
maybe if yeah well you know maybe if i hadn't done that you would have enjoyed the second season more i don't know yeah but i also do think that there were just a a, a slog of episodes in the middle of it that just weren't very good they weren't they weren't bad but they were just kind of there again the first season was 18 episodes and it felt fairly light this was 20 this is 26 yeah and it felt you know a little there were some filler episodes you know i think if if it had trimmed to 20, 18 or 20 episodes, if it had picked the best eight, I mean, if I picked the best 18 to 20 good episodes of this season, it would be a much better season, I think. Yeah, let's get rid of, let's get rid of Rivals. Oh, please. Oh, please. Oh, my God. Rivals. Uh, and the last thing I want to say about the Gem Hadar before we wrap this episode up is I always like to mention when uh, Jake and Cisco get some nice time yeah. together. And it's just nice. It's just nice to see that. You know? Yeah. You know, he, he, I, I I I appreciate that, you know, Cisco has this great father son camping trip in mind, you know, and then suddenly more and more you know, first Nog's coming and then Quark's coming, you know. But then later they do have the, you know, moment of understanding where, you know, yeah. Jake's like, Oh yeah, you know, you know, it'll be just father son next time, you know. Yeah. He just invited his friend because he's fifteen. <laughs> and you know Well, also he invited him because he cares about his friend. No, he, I mean he wants that's, his friend to keep going to school. That's the thing, you know, J- you know, Jake is a very good boy and you know, and he has reasons, you know, he tutors Nog, you know, he's making you know, so I I, I yeah, Jake is a good guy. I think so, too. Um, All right. Well, if you have any thoughts about either of the episodes we just discussed, please leave a comment on the post for this episode of the podcast at trekaboutshow.com. Our social media username where you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram is trekaboutshow. And be as cool as Buckaroo456 is <laughs> and leave us a positive iTunes review. Buckaroo456 says, Eric plays a dangerous game, teasing or misleading Richard or keeping a straight face against insightful observations, such as Jordy's personal connection with technology. Good and fun discussion. Thank you for that review, Buckaroo456. And we hope that uh, we did some more of that in this episode because this was a big one. Yay. Next week, we start the third season of Deep Space Nine with uh, the first, I believe the first two-parter of the season. There's two of them. Uh, We're going to talk about The Search, parts one and two. Oh, boy. So we'll see you then.